Welcome to the Survival Guide for Orthodontists, the podcast that makes you the authority in orthodontics in your community. Get ready for insights on how to compete on expertise and trust against mail order in retail orthodontics. It's not always about the lowest fees. And now, from the People in Practice team, your hosts, Dr. Leon Klempner and Amy Epstein. In today's podcast episode, we're going to help you position your practice on delivering high quality care, and our special guest is going to help you deliver on that promise. How's that for a good use of the next 30 minutes? Welcome to the Survival Guide for Orthodontists. My name is Amy Epstein, co-founder of People in Practice. Before we bring on our special guest, let me introduce my co-host, my dad, my business partner, retired orthodontist, and overall good guy, Dr. Leon Klempner. Thanks, Amy. Uh, I love the good guy, but I particularly love the dad part. Um, (laughs) Thanks for the intro. Uh, And thanks for listening in today, because we have with us the one and the only Dr. David Sarber. Uh, I know that David needs no introduction to our ortho listeners, but in case you've been either living in a vacuum or under a rock for the last uh, 30 or 40 years, uh, here goes. (laughs) I I asked David for his bio, but it was about 10 pages long, so I I pared it down a little bit. David received his dental degree from uh, the University of Alabama and his master's in ortho from the University of North Carolina. Uh, He's a diplomat of the American Board, member of the Edward Angwell Society, fellow of both the International and the American College of Dentists, fellow of the American Academy of Aesthetic Dentistry, and if that were not enough, uh, he had the honor of presenting the Salzman, Merson, and Angle lectures at AAO annual meetings. In addition to his private practice, Dr. Sauver authored the book Aesthetics in Orthodontist and Orthodontic Surgery, and he co-authored the surgical text, Contemporary Treatment of Dentofacial Deformity. Uh, he also co-authored uh, three editions of Dr. Prophet's classic text, Contemporary Orthodontics. Uh, and stay tuned because uh, he's got a new book, uh, Dentofacial Aesthetics from Macro to Mini, and it's scheduled to be published this month. In his spare time, David's given more than 400 professional presentations worldwide, and rumor has it that he once played Division I basketball, perhaps his greatest achievement. Welcome to the Survival Guide for Orthodontist podcast, David Sauber. Hello, Amy. David. Hello, Leon. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Is that I'm true? Uh, yeah, yeah. But that was a half a century ago. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, for which, for which team? Auburn. Oh, very cool. Yeah, yeah I, I okay. don't play that one up very much because it was mostly an embarrassment. Now, lasted two years until I looked in the mirror and realized that I, you know, that was a dentist standing in the mirror, not a professional basketball player. So, I <laughs> did you score any points? Score any points? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I had I, I had my moments of uh, glory, but not very many. Uh, I think you know, uh, actually, this probably ought to belong in the podcast because you know people ask me, was it worth your time? You know, uh, <laughs> certainly you got your tuition covered and those sort of things. And I said, you know, really the greatest value of that whole experience was I had to stare my weaknesses, you know, like in the face, like I, for the first time had to go, I'm not as good as I thought I was. 
And so what am I going to do about it? And mm-hmm. so I gave up my scholarship. I had, you know, about a quarter or two of really poor academic performance. My father was an academic at Auburn University. And so he's actually kind of a big deal. And I came home one night and the dean of the veterinary school was sitting there and several of his buddies. My mom was out of town. And when I come into the room, my dad gets up, walks out of the room. I didn't make any note of it. I was beginning to help myself to the food. And the dean of the veterinary school goes, David. And I said, yes, sir. And he goes, do you know what an embarrassment you are to your father? <laughs> oh, my wow. God. Wow. Now, that's a wake-up call. And I went, mm-hmm. now, what do you answer? You go, yes or no? I said, yes, sir. And he goes, well, what in the hell are you going to do about it? And I'm like, I'm going to get better. You know, what do mm-hmm. you do? All right, but, you know, a boot up your butt is not a bad thing. And I've gotten my share. Mm-hmm. You want to hear the rest of them, I'll share them with you, but you don't want to hear them all. No, that's enough. (laughs) (laughs) I will say that that's a claim that I bet my my six-foot-four-inch father wishes that he could say he'd done in his college career. But uh, alas, not in Queens. No, no, no. My my highlight was uh, high school playground and uh, yeah. pickup ball, and that was yep. about it. You know, well, I, I used I to be six li- feet. I used to be six feet tall. I don't know how many inches you've lost, Leon, but I've lost about an inch and a half. He used to be six foot five. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm on my way. I'm on my way down as well. So yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. you know, fortunately, you're pretty good at ortho. So uh, you, you know, you may you made a comeback. I found my calling. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, before we get into that clinical stuff, let's talk a little bit about the business of orthodontics. Uh, in many of our previous episodes, we've spoken with guests about the disruption that's occurred and some of the changes that successful orthodontic practices have adapted not only to survive, but to flourish in light of everything going on with the dental service organizations and the direct-to-consumer companies that are coming online. And, you know, we feel like there's always room for the orthodontic practice, though, with the reputation of high quality care that actually delivers. So, David, what are your thoughts on that strategy, differentiating an orthodontic practice based on high quality care and trust? Well, you know, that one to me is really pretty simple. Uh, You know, as we say in Alabama, that one ain't that hard. Uh, It's it's the golden rule, you know. Simply do for the patient what you would do for yourself or your child. I have a friend of mine, Dr. John Christensen at the University of North Carolina, uh, who teaches there. And what he has in his seminar is something the resident and he referred to as the Bob Rule. Now, the Bob Rule is his son, Robert. When there's a debate in seminar about what to do with this patient, John ends the seminar, you know, wraps it up with, okay, Bob Rule. In other words, if it was your kid, what would you do? And I think mm-hmm. that's a beautiful way to teach because it's really what we all have to ask ourselves when we walk into the new patient room or we walk to each appointment. Like, uh, you know, am I making a decision that I would make my own child? We talk the, you know, we talk the talk, but, you know, it's even tougher to walk the walk. Uh, the second thing is, is your staff uh, has to share that belief and you have to reinforce the message and have them reinforce it to patients. I've been very fortunate. Now, it's kind of an Alabama thing. You know, we don't move around much down here. Uh, I've had an, an average staff longevity of over 22 years. 
a matter of fact, I just had two receptionists retire today after 33 and 25 years. All right, so I don't have to have staff meetings once a week to reinforce that kind of message. They they know it, and mm-hmm. they they live it. All right, and so that to me is a practice builder right there. Is you know don't get angry at staff for making a mistake. Correct it. Now if they make mm-hmm. it twice, uh, then you know that's not so great. But if they do it three times, that means uh, either they don't care or they're I hate to use the word stupid. They're not very bright. And mm-hmm. they need to move on to a job that would accommodate what um, their uh, certain set of skills are. The patient can really tell the difference when I'm recommending whether I'm just trying to get a set of braces on or I need more starts this month or whatever. You know, there are lots of times that it's just not time. You have the seven-year-old walk in, and it's just not time yet. Um, mm-hmm. And and I can't tell you the number of times, and I'm sure we all experience this, and I'm not saying I'm right all the time either, but when you say, you know, I don't think it's time yet, you know, or whatever, and you don't even know it's a second opinion, and they go, well, the other doctor says we need an RPE like tomorrow. Well, I know one day, one uh, same-day starts are popular, but uh, maybe it's a southern thing that down here nobody's in a hurry. And hmm. so if you're pushy, that kind of does get around Leon. i don't know if you know but one of my favorite books is of all time is lincoln old leadership as a matter of fact I, I give it out at my course as part of the clinical course because i think these principles are what sets the table for us to be able to deliver high quality care now i'm not going to take any quotes directly out of it and take up a bunch of time with that but I'm, i've kind of just took a quick thumb through it and got some important points that makes these admonitions such as uh, honesty and integrity are the best pro- policies. Now, what do I mean? Well, that's obvious. Okay, we all get that one in Sunday school. But what does it mean? It means that if I am, uh, we've made a mistake on a patient. Uh, for example, yesterday we put uh, Monday got a wire that got put in upside down. Patient picked up on it because her teeth hurt. And she called, mm-hmm. and she's two hours away, and she was like, you know, so we'll bring her right on in. And, and so what did I do? Well, the, the staff member was embarrassed that she'd put it in upside down. I was embarrassed because I didn't pick it on the checkout on the way out. Uh, so we both, you know, made a boo-boo. And the patient came in and said, well, what's happening? I said, well, I, I, hate to be, I hate to admit this, but we put the wire in upside down, and, and my apologies. And so – that has two lessons to it. One, the patient knows that I'm not going to lie to her. Number two, the staff knows that I'm not going to lie. All right, now, what's that got to do with the staff member? Well, one, it protects the staff member. But number two, the staff member knows that when I tell them something like, uh, you're not getting a raise because of whatever, I'm not lying. You know, I'm telling the truth. So mm-hmm. staying by the truth is a, a number one lesson to me. Uh, and so I read that book once a year, and I require my management staff to read it uh, as well. Uh, another one that I like is persuade rather than coerce. You know, that goes for your staff members, but also for patients that, you know, patients don't want a lot of times what we are selling. And so, you know, is my job to sell them something or am I a professional who is there to um uh, coach them or counsel them. That is my belief that my job is not to sell you braces. Uh, my job is to tell you what my opinion in opinion is as to what the right thing 
is to do. And then the final one that I kind of picked out was never act out of vengeance or spite. And so what do I mean by that one? Well, what I mean is that, you know, patients say ugly things to you, um, you know, during a day, uh, you know, or a new patient will say, uh, you know, no, we're here just getting opinions, you know, and I'm going, well, hey, wait a minute, I'm, I'm Dr. Sarver. You're supposed to be here because I'm Mr. Wonderful. Uh, but what they're telling you is they're shopping. You know, well, I can't get mad about that, you know, and take it out on them. Uh, you just tell them what you need to tell them and press on. You just have to resist any uh, uh, desire to put that patient down some. Or a patient tells you something that their doctor has said that you find rather disagreeable, and it makes you angry. But you can't afford to respond in a nonprofessional manner. Uh, in other words, you just keep, uh, you know, when you go back, what's the strategy of differentiating your practice on high quality and trust? Well, you behave in that way. And so um, the best thing to do when the patient makes you angry is to simply respond as to what you think and what you would do and, and uh, stand on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I particularly, you know, going back to one of your first points about the team, you know, from a, from a branding perspective, you know, a lot of people when they think of, of a, a company or a product and it has a brand, they think of the, maybe that's just the logo. If I design a logo, that's the brand. But the brand is the experience. And so if you're, you have an orthodontic practice and you're, you're differentiating on, on the quality and the trust, so the authenticity and the honesty and the real high level of care, it really needs to be in every interaction that the patient has when they come into your office. So working with your team to make sure that they feel like they're on board, that you're truthful with them and they can be truthful with patients, that's just all part of building that experience um, that that. You know, you have to do it that way if you're going to try to differentiate on it. Well, you know, and the experience doesn't have to be a, a fluff-me-up kind of experience. I, I want to yeah. use an example of uh, uh, Rebecca, who just retired as a receptionist of 33 years. Well, she had a lady at the front desk who came up and, and said, you know, the patient was running overtime and said to him, to Rebecca, why is he keeping the braces on for so long? I mean, is he just trying to make extra money? Well, Rebecca just stood up and said, I have never seen Dr. Sarver make a decision based on money. And I've worked for him for at that time, 30 years. And I frankly kind of resent what you just said. And mm-hmm. the mother, you know, I figure, okay, there goes that family. But the mother went, oh gosh, I am, I am sorry. Does, you're not going to tell him I said that, are you? And she goes, well, it wouldn't matter because he'd get over it pretty quickly. So I don't worry about it. And then went on about her business. But I was really impressed that that staff member uh, just stood up and uh, mm-hmm. defended our policies and how we behave. That's insulting to us as a team that um, you think he's doing something just to rip you for a few more dollars. Mm-hmm. By the way, mm-hmm. let me point out the fact that you're already paid in full, so you're on his dime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, David, um, you know, I, I, I practiced my career um, living that Bob rule. And, and I could tell you, and this is important for the listeners out there to, to hear, because, you know, Amy and I are, you know, we're in the marketing business. Right. But I, I could tell you <laughs> that you could spend as much money as you want and hire as many marketing people as you want. If you don't walk the walk and talk the talk, it's a waste of money and it's going to blow up in your face. So if you want to market on trust, you want to market on, on high quality, then you got you to gotta live it. And, and uh, you know, patients pick that up right away. You know, they, they may come in because they believe one thing, 
but you know their crap detector goes off real quick if uh, it's not consistent <laughs> when they when they meet you and you know so that you know that that's just the, the bottom line truth but well you, you raise know, look, the point me, for me Leon is is what is quality okay it's experience they know that okay but as orthodontists what's our argument about what's a quality result that's something we've got to work out among ourselves is what is a quality result is it well, a great inclusion is it appearance or what well let, let's talk a little bit about some of the clinical stuff um uh you know amy and i give a marketing course to the ortho residents up at harvard and these guys are in, in you know in debt they need to know how to at least get off the starting block you know we gave uh, a marketing lecture we had a little extra time so i gave i pulled out some of my clinical stuff and I gave them a short lecture on the effect of maturation and aging on the smile. And we had a discussion about that. So let me ask you a question about that. Um, first of all, do you agree that we should build it into our treatment plan and our strategy? And if so, what factors do you consider when you're treatment planning a patient? Well, you know, to start that one, Leon, as you, you, you may or may not know, I first began to lecture on the topic, the aging face, in the late 1980s. Now, about half your audience wasn't even born then, but that was something that was of interest to me uh, because a lot of my practice at that time, because I had uh, come to Birmingham to uh, initiate a more formal jaw surgery programs. I saw a lot of people who had been treated as children, but they really did not look good as adults. And so I began mm. to get pretty interested in, okay, how come that one turned out needing jaw surgery to uh, restore their appearance? And so I began to follow data and that sort of thing. But I'll tell you what's really important for the young clinician getting out is I have in this uh, upcoming book, I have uh, you know, my first book had, I think, four or five patients in the aging face chapter, and I've got three out of those five with 30-year records in my next book. All right, mm -hmm. and, and the point being that uh, don't be real quick to dismiss your patients. You understand that it's an overhead issue that, okay, if you keep bringing them back, it takes up chair time. It, uh, uh, you know, you take models or you take photos, you waste your time. Or is that a waste of time? What that's doing is confirming your relationship with that patient, that I really do care about you as a person in the long term. So from a marketing standpoint, the aging face and how you follow your patients long term cements your relationship with them so that I'm on my second and third generation of patients and they won't go anywhere else. I mean, they come from Atlanta, Nashville, Mississippi, mm -hmm. you name it. All right. So. Let me start with my checklist uh, of then what factors should we consider uh, in, in the aging face and the aging smile. And believe it or not, I, I don't start off with teeth. I start off with lips on, on uh, repose. In other words, okay, my wife and I are, I'm not going to give away any numbers, but we're in the older generation. And what my wife worries about are the wrinkles on her lips. And you can go back and look at pictures of yourself or anybody that uh, 50 years ago, you know, I had a lot more vermilion display, uh, I had a Cupid's bow, all those sort of things, and you can read about it someday. But I think that's a good starting point that 
denture prosthodontists realized pretty quickly that they had the 60-year-old patient come in with a picture of them when they were 25 and say, I want to look like that. Then the second one that I think that people don't really, and I think orthodontists don't recognize this, is the amount of incisor display on smile. We talk about it. Everybody understands that ever since all the way back to Vince Kokich that we show less incisor at rest and on smile as we get older. So one of my clinical exam standards is just simply measuring the amount of incisor display at rest because I've got data on what happens over a 30 and 40 year period uh, about uh, how much tooth shows at rest. That's a starting point. But then really, where does the rubber hit the road? The rubber hits the road as to not going, okay, I know that. I know that we show less incisor as we get older, but what do you do about it is the question. Okay, so what that's led to for me is actually there are, uh, let's say, a 12-year-old who shows two millimeters of incisor at rest and should show four, even five. When I put the braces on, where do I put the brackets? Do I put it in the middle of the tooth like we are used to, or do I probe and measure what is the it, does the patient have altered active or passive eruption? you got to learn some periodontics. And there are a lot of cases that I will either take a diode laser and lengthen the teeth prior to placing brackets because I want to put the bracket up higher on the clinical crown than I would uh, just looking at what I see sitting in the mouth. And the reason for that is tooth pole. One is I want to extrude the upper teeth. And number two is uh, if I put the brackets up against the gum margin, then I've got an oral hygiene trap. So it makes sense that if it's altered passive eruption, I'm going to take a diode laser. If it's altered active eruption, I have to make a decision as to whether it's appropriate to have the periodontist to do osseous surgery on that patient before I even place brackets. So that's how far that sort of thinking, at least for me, has gone, that I should be designing the smile for the long term from day one by knowing from the clinical exam and how I put the brackets on. What what do you think about, uh, you know, I I agree with you, and I I used to actually knowing the fact that that a patient's profile flattened over time, when confronted with a a borderline situation on finishing a case on a 12-year-old, if I had the option of leaving them a little bit fuller versus a little bit flatter, I would choose a little bit fuller. What do you yeah. think about that? I think that's kind of uh, kind of pretty standard in orthodontics nowadays. I think most most of us think that way, that that uh, patients have picked up on flat profiles. I mean, you know, uh, I'm sure in your practice time period, you had patients come in. I don't want to have that, quote, orthodontic look. I don't want to look over-retracted. Now, I've taken that further than profile. Uh, I introduced a term at the AAO two years ago called smile projection, which is a 45-degree view of where are the teeth in uh, all three dimensions. Like, uh, how do you see a person socially? You don't see them on profile that much. You see them more like 45 degrees. And so Mm -hmm. there are aspects of that view of a patient that I think are at least as important as a profile. But I agree with you that when in doubt, you know, you, you could leave them too full and balance it with a, a chin, and they would mm-hmm. look wonderful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
David, I'm going to jump in here just uh, to help any non-clinical team members that are also listening in um, and ask a, a question about some of the terms I've heard growing up around an orthodontic office. I hear the term smile arc discussed a lot. Um, my dad said you were instrumental in bringing this to the forefront. Can you talk a little bit about what it is and why high quality clinicians should pay attention to it? Yeah, you know, and actually when when I think about that question and I get asked and asked that question fairly often and it's really a long kind of a long story. Let me make it pretty short that the term smile art was first described by a denture prosthodontist in the 50s. These two guys named Frush and Fisher. And then it was published in Orthodontics in 1973 by Charles Halsey. And it was in the, in the AJO. And it got, you know, as I say, about the only person I think who noticed it was Garland Hershey at the University of North Carolina who made it part of our reading list. That was the first I heard of it. And you know what? I shelved it. it being a young orthodontist at the time, I was focused on what, what is really important, what is medically necessary for people. It, uh, it only took years later that I realized what realized what people were really looking for. I mean, I'm not saying that's not important. Some of the other things that are aspects of orthodontics, but appearance is really, to me, a major driver of it. And then uh, the father-son team of Mark and Jim Ackerman published the Smile Mission, the Journal of Craniofacial and Orthodontic Research in the late 90s. And what they were trying to do was measure the smile arc. Now, what the smile arc is is simply the curvature of And the original article has always talked about the anterior teeth and its uh, consonants or parallelism of the occlusal plane to the lower lip on smile. Uh, I've taken it to a 45-degree view that it is an occlusal plane relationship to the lower lip on smile. Well, you know, unfortunately, that paper did not leave a big imprint. And then I published something in 2001. And for some reason, it it left a big imprint. Well, I think it was a matter of being in the right place at the right time. And I use the old Chinese proverb of when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. That up until the early 2000s, orthodontists just weren't ready to talk about the smile. They just weren't ready to talk about it. I read an old interview I did with Charlene White back in 2003 where she asked me the future of orthodontics and and one of the things I said in 2003 was smile design is going to become paramount in what we do. And so that was that long ago. Why is it important to uh, practitioners? Because uh, I had a, a orthodontic representative one time, my local rep, tell me that he went to the movie and there were 10 young ladies lined up, you know, on a Sunday afternoon going to the movie. And he called them out and said, hey, line up. And they all lined up. And he said, I'll smile. And they all smiled. And he said, he went through and picked out which ones saw me as an orthodontist mm. based on that. Uh-huh. He said, they stood out like flashlights. You could really tell the difference. And I think it was smile arc, and I think it was incisor display. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that. You know, what we do typically on this podcast is invite callers to leave questions for us that our guests can answer. And so we'll go ahead and uh, play one of those questions right now. Yes, this is Dr. Deborah New. I'm in Rochester, New York, and I would be interested in what your pearls would be in consideration with situations where you have lateral incisors and congenitally missing lateral incisors on the contralateral side. 
Do you have any specifics that you like to go through with your patients with these considerations? Also, if you have any considerations when you have lateral incisors. Thank you very much. You know, that that question actually occupies one full chapter in my upcoming book, which is, you know, the 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 conundrum to the orthodontist of the missing lateral incisor. And I call it the orthodontic tetrad of decisions, which means we have these choices. We have an implant. We have tooth substitution. We have non-implants uh, um, or we have autotransplantation. Four choices. Well, you got a 14-year-old. So what does that mean? That means implants out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may mean autotransplantation is in. It may mean tooth substitution is in. Or it means a removable is in. All right. And so uh, why are those choices important? Um, and, and to me, one of the major things that you run into is dentists assume that if, you know, and, and I'll, I'll get probably some emails or, uh, you know, nasty letters about this comment, but dentists tend to think in terms of if there's a space, then an implant belongs there. As an orthodontist, we sit there with a family of a 14-year-old or a 12-year-old, and we're deciding, okay, are we going to substitute canines for missing laterals or a missing lateral? It depends on the face. It depends on lip support. It depends on incisor display. It's not a simple dental decision. All right, and so it becomes complex. Next thing is... Does the family, will they go that way? Do we want an implant? No, we don't want an implant. Okay. Mm-hmm. If they tell you they don't want an implant, but an implant is the wrong choice for them, it's incumbent to you to advise them as to why that's a bad decision. Next thing is the data that almost nobody knows is what happens to a, an implant over a 10-year period. And there are two really excellent studies uh, done on that, uh, one by uh, Bridget T. Lander in Europe. And what she did was followed up an average age range of about 15 of patients over 10 years and found that over that 10-year period, implants infra-occluded a range of 0.1 to 2.2 millimeters. Well, if it's 0.1, that's probably not much of a problem. We're talking about in the front. We're talking in in the aesthetic zone. But if it's 2.2, that is a disaster. Okay, now, how do you know that the 14-year-old you just finished is going to be a 0.1 or a 2.2? The answer is you don't know. All right, so then, okay, we talk about the kid. Let's talk about the adult. Some uh, periodontists, Bernard Schatz, followed up with, and I'm happy to provide the listeners with these references if they would like. They did two populations. They did one with an average age of 15 and a half, and, no, excuse me, 18 and a half, and they did a population of average age 43. It turned out that the infra-occlusion was worse in the older population than it was in the younger population. So when I first started presenting this sort of material, uh, actually, the, the, I got invited, I presented it to the American Academy of Prosthodontists, I presented it to the American Academy of Restorative Dentistry, the American Academy of Aesthetic Dentistry, and a special meeting of the American Academy, uh, the American Association of Oral Maxillofacial Surgery 
in Chicago on implants. And I was asked specifically to present on this topic and that data. And I just assumed that I would probably get booed off the stage and all that. And the opposite occurred. What happened, I had several doctors come up and say, can I have a PDF of that um, presentation you made? And I was kind of surprised. And I said, sure, why? And they said, 10 years later, I see that happen. And the doctors that referred to me quit referring because they think it's my fault. And what you're telling me is, no, I should expect that in a certain number of cases. And the answer is yes. Now, one last piece of data that I think is important is Vince Kogich did a very nice study on the use of removables, you know, flippers, to put in a 14-year-old and found that within three years, 11% of those required retreatment to put the roots back in position for implants because they tend to drift and reapproximate and require further orthodontic retreatment, which A, gets angry parents, and B, they want it done, redone for free. And mm -hmm. so what I have drifted towards, and that'll be in this chapter, is I recommend to the parents that the top choice is a winged bridge. In other words, a porcelain Maryland-type bridge that you can put in on a 14-year-old. It looks fantastic. It has minimal preparation on the lingual or the palatal, and it looks great. They can have it for a long time. You're going to have to pay that bill sometime. <laughs> you know, you're going to have to mm -hmm. buy an implant and a crown, or you got to buy a bridge. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, implant and a crown costs more than the bridge, and they get to enjoy it while they're going through high school. That's my mm -hmm. argument for that. And I would say probably 95% of patients buy that and say, yes, I want my child to look good going through middle school, high school. I agree. Press on. Now, there's some other things that go along with it. Uh, but I won't get into that right now today. Yeah, you know, um, I think that oftentimes we as orthodontists feel that we're doing patient a favor by avoiding the implant, but oftentimes at the expense of giving them the, the, the quality aesthetic result that we could provide if we went with the implant, you know, treatment plan. So, you know, it's it's one of those things where you want, yeah, you want to save the patient money and you want to you know, help the patient out. But on the other hand, um, I, I don't think that, that the, the patient or, or the parent really wants a, a compromised aesthetic result because of that. Well, and I think what the doctor was asking was, what about the unilateral missing tooth? To me, that means you really have to pay attention on how to reshape a canine and make it look like a lateral. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> there are two millimeters wider they are shaped differently. They've got a cingulum, which means they jut out. And so, and, and, the, and the convexity of the surface on the front makes the light come off it differently. You have to, you have to really think about, okay, if I'm going to tackle lateralization of a, a canine, I'm either going to do it or I am not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> do it, do mm -hmm. it right or don't do it. Mm -hmm. So, David, you mentioned that uh, you have a new book coming out. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about why you wrote the book. I mean, uh, you, you've written so much. <laughs> there's so much out there. What is, what is it? Why why should listeners buy the book? What is it? What, what's going on? Well, I'd say first I need the money. 
Uh, second thing <laughs> is is that uh, we have the David Sarver Fund. If anybody wants to contribute, just send a check yeah. in. Hey, I, I, yeah, just, I'll take uh, just, what is it? The GoFundMe. Uh, yeah, David yeah. Sarver has spent so much time writing that he forgot to make money. Okay, now the uh, the the true answer is Bill Prophet told me to. We had finished a version of Contemporary, and he said, "Okay, it's time for you to write a book." Why did I write my first book? Bill Prophet and Jim Ackerman told me, you need to write a book. And I said, oh, I'm in private practice. <laughs> you know, it doesn't do me a bit of good. And they mm-hmm. said, orthodox need to know what you're talking about. It's important. You need to write the book. And what you will also find is doing the research to write the book, will you will learn so much more, and it will empower you as a clinician even more than you are now. So it fits with that first question about how do you do high-quality practice. You work at it. You read. You you constantly evaluate what you're doing. You recall patients. I had a guy come up to me in Boston at a disciplinary meeting, periodontist, and say, I've been doing implants for 19 years, and I have never seen that infraocclusion thing you're talking about. I've never seen that. And I said, well, do you bring the patients back, you know, a year later? He goes, sometimes. I said, five years later? Oh, no. Ten? No. I said, respectfully, you have no idea what you're talking about. You know, I hate to tell you, you don't know what you're talking about. The data is clear, and unless you uh, are open-minded and listen to the, you know, I'm not saying you got to buy it, but at least be aware of it. Now, the other thing that it boils down to, Amy, Leon, to me, it's an important informed consent issue. That if you don't counsel a patient that if we make this choice, this could potentially happen. You could be liable for that. So I think it's an important issue. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, David, congratulations. Uh, we look forward to seeing that book and reading that book. And thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. We have a great lineup of guests and topics of interest moving forward. We'll be discussing going after the easy cases and reducing your overhead with in-house digital printing with Dr. Bill Lehman, the pluses and minuses of ortho Facebook groups with Dr. Glenn Krieger, aligner treatment tips from Dr. Donna Galante, and much more. Be sure to listen in. You can also download other episodes or sign up for our marketing newsletter at thesurvivalguidefororthodontists.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you tell a colleague, and I see that my dad's reminding me here to say, and give us a five-star rating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, thanks again for listening. A quick note that we do offer geographic exclusivity to our marketing clients. Today we talked about the need to differentiate your practice from DSOs and direct-to-consumer competition. If you're interested in discussing it, contact me. See if your area is available for a marketing analysis and auction plan. Just shoot me an email at leon at pplpractice.com. Amy, take us home. It's all yours. Thank you, Dad. Until next time, remember, the golden age of orthodontics is ahead. 
Thank you for joining us on the Survival Guide for Orthodontists, where we help your practice grow within a massively disrupted industry. Subscribe to this podcast and connect with us on social media. Find us online at the survival guide for orthodontists.com.